0: think that I have any announcements for us to go through today, so we're just going to go ahead and jump right into uh, the teaching for this morning. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 18. If you want to open your Bible to Luke 18, we're going to be reading there this morning. As I said, we'll be in Luke chapter 18 this morning, and we'll be starting in verse 9. So, we're actually going to be looking at the passage right after what we looked at last week. We're doing a series on the, on the parables. Uh, if you're uh, unaware, we're doing a series on the parables this spring uh, going into summer. Uh, Jesus spoke in parables, taught in parables very, very often. Uh, the Gospels are full of Jesus' parables, and so that means there's a lot for us to choose from, and so for this series, I just chose a, a bunch of random ones uh, in no necessary order or, or or theme or anything else, but chose forced them uh, for us to go through. Uh, last week and this week is actually going to be the only time where there's a connection between the two, um, because last week Jesus taught a parable, and then it goes in directly into another one, so I thought, okay, so for these two, we'll do these two together, Um So, that's the only ones. The other ones, we're we're just pulling right out of context and looking at them, right? So, all right. Well, if we are all ready then, we'll go ahead and jump in. All right. So, we are in Luke chapter 18 and starting in verse 9. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So as I said, we're looking at parables in this series, and this these are the only parables that we're looking at where there is a connection between the two, because Jesus actually goes from teaching and one right next to the other, here in this passage. Last week, we looked at the, the parable of um, the parable of the persistent widow, right? Where there's this, this judge, this widow, she comes to him. And at the end of that parable, he says uh, in verse 8, he says, I tell you that he will swiftly grant justice. Nevertheless, he says, when the Son of Man comes, talking about whenever Jesus returns to the earth to fully bring about the kingdom, right? To, to fully bring about the consummation of the kingdom, to finish... His work and the Father's work once and for all in history. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And then after that verse, we go into the next three sections in, uh, in this pa- passage in Luke that are all on faith. So it goes right after he says that part about, will the Son of Man find faith on earth? It goes into three sections, all of which the emphasis is on faith. And so uh, the first one starts off with this parable. So, he goes transitioning directly into something that we should understand as a parable on faith. And so, this is really important for us to grasp because uh, what, if we come to this parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector, and we say, well, what's the importance of it? Why does it matter? It matters because Jesus is teaching this, us this parable so that we would see the kind of faith that he wants us to have, right? If we were to live as Christians, as disciples, right? As, as people of faith, we're often called in society. Well, What does that mean, to be a people of faith? What does faith mean? What does it look like? This parable teaches us. And so he teaches this parable, and then we have these two other sections that Luke shows us, the kind of faith that is to typify, that is to characterize followers of Christ. More than that, than just the importance of, well, if I want to be a Christian, live by faith, this is what the faith looks like, Jesus tells us that the kind of faith you have is uh, the fulcrum upon which your justification is is decided, because he says in this parable, in this contrast between these two different people of faith, right, that one of them was justified, one of them was saved, and one of them was not. One of them went to his home in a new relationship with God. One of them did not. And so we are learning about the faith that leads to justification. What we are learning about is the kind of faith that saves, and so, that's why this parable matters. That's why it's so important, why we really need to make sure that we understand it and grasp it uh, and, and, for, and, and its relevance to our lives today. So, we're going to look at three things in, related to this parable. The first thing that we're going to look at is the obstacle. We're going to look at the obstacle, and then the opportunity, and then the outcome. So, three things related to faith and the faith that saves. The obstacle, the opportunity, and the outcome. Let's start by looking at the obstacles. So this is the obstacle to justification or the obstacle to saving faith. So just to review the parable, it, it, it's a simple parable. It's a famous one. I'm sure you know, most of us in here have heard this parable, parable before. Um, there are two characters in this parable, and they're meant to contrast one another. And we're contrasting these two very different characters through the similar act that they're doing. We have these two characters, and Jesus says they went up to the temple to pray. The reason they would say that is because the temple was up on a mountain, so they go up to the temple. So they go up to the temple to pray, and they're in this outer court that, uh, that all Jews would be allowed to go in because the, the temple had these various different courts. They had different sections or layers like an onion, right? Going down to the center, where in the center was the Holy of Holies, but they had all these layers going out. And in all the different layers of the temple is where uh, certain people were allowed to go, okay? The reasoning behind that is another sermon. But there's all these different courts. And so the Pharisee and the tax collector are in the court for the Jewish men. So there they are going to pray and going to to worship God at the same time. And we get to contrast in how they pray and see their different characters. And so we start with the Pharisee. Because Jesus says there is this Pharisee. He goes into the temple court, and he, he is standing off by himself. And notice this. In the text it says the Pharisee goes... And he lifts his his eyes up to heaven, and he prays to God about himself. It doesn't say to himself, right? Like, you know, we might often say something along like like praying to yourself, and what we mean by that is is alone, with other people, or maybe quietly you're not speaking out loud. It doesn't say praying to himself as though, you know, he was off in his his corner, his prayer closet, uh, doing his thing. But instead it says that he went and he was standing and praying like this, about himself. And then notice the content of his prayer. He's praying, you know, God, I, I thank you. I know that sounds like words of gratitude and thanksgiving, but, but notice, the, the, like I said, the, the content and kind of the flavor, the nuance of it. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other people. I thank you that I'm not greedy, and I thank you that I'm not unrighteous, and I thank you that I'm not an adulterer, and I thank you that I'm not a thief. I thank you that I'm not a liar and that, you know, I'm not even like like somebody like that guy over there. I thank you that I'm not like him. Okay, so here's what you need to see, that everything in this story and what Jesus says and the way that Jesus describes this guy's prayer is that this is a person who is filled with spiritual pride. Okay, because number one, he was going there to be seen and heard by other people. He cared deeply about that because he was a Pharisee and there was another court that he could have gone into past the one that he was in here, all right, there's another court that he could have gone into that was allowed only for priests, a court that he could have gone into. It was allowed, you know, for the religious leaders, but instead he stayed in the court where all the normal folk were, right, where all the the church people were, where all the lay people were. He stayed out in that court so he could stand there and pray among all those normal, unrighteous people who weren't as good as him, all right, so that's the first thing we see. He is, he's filled with an incredible pride. He wants to be seen and heard. And he wants his goodness, his, his righteousness, and, you know, his fasting and his tithing. He wants that to be seen by all these people. But not just that. Notice, like I said, he's praying, and the, like, the words of his prayer, if, we were, if they were taken just, uh, you know, on a surface level um, or casually, they seem to be a prayer of thanksgiving because he says, God, I thank you. Not like these other people, right? And and you know, and 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 a prayer like that could be legitimate because there can be times in your life where where you do pray, Lord. You know, I thank you that that I'm not in you know another situation in my life, but that I am where I am right now, right? And you can pray a, a, a prayer of thanks to God like that because you can pray, you know, Lord, I thank you that I'm not, uh, you know, living in a ditch, right? Uh, because because you have blessed me because you protected me from the opportunities that I could have taken advantage of to to screw my life up. You saved me from temptation whenever I was in the battle. You you have showered your blessings upon me, right? So you can pray a prayer of thanksgiving to God that sounds similar to this, but one that is truly based upon how God's work has saved you from that situation, right? But that's not what he's praying. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other people, but it's all about how It's all about his work and how it's according to his work and what he has done that he's not like all those other people, not according to God's work or God's blessing or God's protection and deliverance, you see. Scholars know for us the amount of times that he says, I, in this prayer. I, 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 what I have done. So here we have a character who is Filled with spiritual pride, filled with spiritual goodness, confident in in, uh, in in his in his righteousness, confident in his moral goodness. But what we can also say is that he was a morally good person, right? Because is it morally better to be an adulterer or to be faithful? To be faithful. Is it morally better to be greedy or to be content? To be content right? And so on and so forth. Is it morally better to fast or to not fast? Well, to fast. Is it morally better to tithe or to not tithe? To tithe, right? All these things. So he was, a, he was a good person. He followed the law, but he was also filled with an incredible amount of pride. In contrast, we have this tax collector. The tax collector cannot even stand and pray, which would have been the custom. You know, it, it's our custom today to, you know, to bow your head, we might say, or to kneel, whatever else. But it was actually the custom back then to stand. You would stand wherever you prayed. Um, but this tax collector, on the other hand, Feels so weighed down by the acknowledgement of his sin, by the acknowledgement of his of his, you know, moral badness, in contrast to moral goodness, that he cannot even stand and lift his eyes to heaven. So here we have, in contrast, a man who is morally scrupulous, right? He is not a good person. He is, in fact, all those things that the Pharisee was thanking God that he was not. He was greedy right? He did not follow God's law. He was unrighteous. The tax collector was somebody who in their eyes um, back then would have been, and maybe in some of our eyes, uh, was seen as one of the most uh, unmoral people that there was, right? Because the tax collector was somebody, he would have been a Jewish man like the rest of his Jewish brothers and sisters. He would have been uh, a son of Israel, right? A person from Israel, a citizen with the rest of them, a child of Abraham, but he was working for the Roman Empire. He was working for their oppressors. He was working for the colonizers who had taken over Israel during this time, made them one of their provinces, and then was taxing them in order to feed the machine of their empire. He was a traitor to his people by working for the empire, by working for the Romans, and being, in other words, you know the, the, the arm of the Roman government, in his town, exacting taxes from the people to then give to Rome. And you see, on top of that, he wasn't just taking taxes on behalf of Rome, right? Something that they would have been deep, felt deeply betrayed by. But the way that it worked was, is Rome would tell these tax collectors, here's how much tax revenue you need to get us. No, whatever you collect is up to you, right? So what that means is, is that the tax collector Whenever you came into their town could say, it's going to be $20 to enter Capernaum today or whatever else, right? But what he has to send to the Romans is really only five. The 15 is his, you see. So they had a a reputation of being extraordinarily greedy, of being betrayers, traitors, backstabbers of their own people, of being morally scrupulous, right? So here you have him. But on the other hand, he is not, he, he, so he is a bad person, but he is not filled with spiritual pride. Instead, he sees himself as spiritually bankrupt. He goes before God in prayer, and he is not able to bring with him this, the, these credentials, right? His moral credentials of all the, the good works and all the ways he has upheld the law. Instead, he sees himself as having nothing to bring God, and his only option is to appeal to divine mercy, So in contrast, the Pharisee sees himself as being able to enter into God's presence, as being able to have a relationship with God based upon his own righteousness. Whereas the tax collector sees his only option for being able to enter into the presence of God, his only option as being able to be accepted by God, is God's divine mercy being given to him as a gift. And here's what Jesus says. It is the spiritually bankrupt one, not the spiritually good one. It is the tax collector, not the priest, the Pharisee, who goes home justified. This statement would have shocked his audience. We need to be able to get past our own, you know, modern prejudices to see this. That in their minds, hearing this parable up until that point, the Pharisee was the good guy. The Pharisee was the hero. The Pharisee was the one that they would have assumed, they would have thought, is the one who's justified. But Jesus says to them, nope. Because God doesn't look at all those external behaviors. God doesn't look at all the, the religiosity. God doesn't look at that, that, that behavior modification. God looks at the heart. And the spiritual pride of the Pharisee was his obstacle to justification. And so here's the first point we'll learn. Justification is not available to the spiritually proud. Justification is not available to the spiritually proud. This parable is trying to warn us about the dangers of spiritual pride. That's what Luke tells us right off the bat going to this parable. He says that Jesus continued to speak in parables. He told another one because he was trying to warn those people who were spiritually proud. See, what does it mean to, be, to have spiritual pride? Well, Luke tells us himself, he says, spiritual pride is trusting in yourself that you are righteous. Trusting in yourself that you are righteous. So in other words, spiritual pride, and, and to have a heart like this Pharisee, means to look at the good behaviors that, that you have in your life and to say that these good behaviors make me righteous. These good behaviors make me right with God. And so God must accept me because of all the good things that I'm doing. God must approve of me because of all the good choices that I have made and all the laws and rules that I have followed. You see, this is spiritual pride. And so the logic of the gospel that Spiritual pride and that self-righteousness is actually an obstacle to justification in relationship with God is, is the logic is completely inverted from how we people often think, especially how, how we Americans often think. And it's the complete opposite of maybe how many of us in here were raised. Many of us in here were raised maybe your whole life in church, but you were taught an opposite message. You were taught a Pharisee message that it is your good works, that it is your ability to follow the rules, that it is your ability, that it is your church attendance, and that it is your uh, doing all the churchy things and your tithing and your following the rules, uh, completing the sacraments, that makes you right before God. But Jesus flips that on its head. He said, it is not for the spiritually proud. It is not for those who have accomplished their own righteousness. Justification is for the spiritually bankrupt. Remember, it was that, it was that greedy, unrighteous tax collector who had done nothing to earn his standing before God who went home justified. The Pharisee is confident of his goodness and thinks that his standing before God is earned by his own efforts. In contrast, the tax collector is aware of his sinfulness and acknowledges his need for divine mercy. And it is him who goes home justified. But why is it that way? Because once you know, this might be a little difficult for us to understand and to grasp because, like I said, it goes against everything that we're told in our world and our culture. For many of us, it goes against everything that you may have learned in church growing up. Why does it work this way? Why is it that the, that the true biblical gospel is actually against our earning or against our works? Here's why. I, I could point you to a lot of different places, but here's why. One of the clearest. Paul tells us himself in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, in some of the clearest language, he tells us in verses 8 and 9, he says, for you are saved by grace through faith. Okay, for you are saved by grace through faith. Here's what that means. By nothing you have done. Grace means an unmerited, it means an unearned gift. Let's say that it's, uh, it's the end of the pay period, and your boss comes to you handing out uh, the, the checks for, you know, checks for work. And he goes around, he's handing out checks, and he says to you, this check is a gift. What does that imply? Was that a compliment to your work performance over the previous pay period? Or, you know, if your boss hands you your check and says, This check is grace, does that say that you really, really earned that paycheck the last pay period? Or is it saying, or is he saying to you, You didn't earn it, right? That's what he means. This is a gift? But here's what Paul says about salvation. He says, For you're saved by grace, right? That means you didn't earn it. Through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. Salvation is something that cannot be earned. And in fact, the only way that it is, it is received is if it is received by grace. Whenever we have laid down all of our works, whenever we have laid down all of our efforts, whenever we have laid down all of our pedigrees and credentials and, and, and rules that we have followed and behaviors that we have changed and all those those good things, So that the the salvation that God offers to us would be received only by his grace, only as a gift. Here is why, Paul says in verse 9. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. You see, that is why. Go back to the parable. There's one man who was boasting, who was very proud in himself. Right? Was he concerned with the glory of God in his prayer? No. And whenever he left the temple that day, was he ready to go and declare the glory of God? No, his own glory. But the tax collector, on the other hand, who was bankrupt in his soul, who had no, who had no moral riches to be able to earn his salvation or pay for it himself, whenever he left that day justified, whenever he left that day with his sins forgiven, that experience of grace that experience of this infinite, divine gift of mercy given to him, he left that day not ready to sing his own praises, but to declare the glory of God. He left that day not boasting in himself, but boasting in the glory of God. This is why God offers salvation, justification to us on grace and grace alone, because of that reason, so that no one can boast. So that wherever you enter into the kingdom of God, so that wherever you enter into the church, whether you, so that wherever you're in church today, you can whether you are a, a goody two-shoes who was, who was raised in church from the time you were born, went Sunday in and Sunday out, who was in youth groups and summer camps and you have obeyed all the rules, so that you can sit down right next to the person who has the complete opposite story. Right? Some of us have that opposite story. We broke all the rules. We have a background that we're not proud of. Maybe we have a background that we've had to deal with some shame over at times. But so that that goody two-shoes and that tax collector or prostitute can sit right next to each other, and their seat was earned by the same thing, grace. They have equal standing before God. The Pharisee cannot boast in his ability to sit next to the tax collector because he did not earn it. Why is spiritually, spiritual pride an obstacle to justification? Because God will have no other glory competing with his. When we are saved, we are saved by grace alone for the glory of God alone. So let me point out two dangers of spiritual pride here. The first one is this. The first is that you might start to come to trust in your own abilities rather than trusting in God. Now, that's a real danger. Right? Because as long as you are trusting in your own abilities to be what earns your, your, your standing before God as approved by him, uh, uh, to be what maintains your status of uh, uh, forgiven or whatever else, right, then that is an obstacle between you and him. right? So, th- so it is a danger. Spiritual pride is a danger because it might make you start to rely on yourself rather than relying on God. And then that's going to be a danger for your ongoing spiritual life, because what is that going to do? It's going to cause a separation. It's going to drive a wedge between you and your relationship with God. Let me ask you this question. How many of you guys have ever, have ever sinned, or you, you've gone through a season of of just uh, wallowing in sin, right? You go through a season where you're lacking in repentance, and then you finally come to your senses, but then you just feel like this block. You feel like a wall of shame. You feel there, there's clouds of guilt hanging over you that you feel that you, you cannot penetrate through to go before the throne of grace. Right? Because, oh, because you should have known better. Or, oh, because you, you, uh, you, you've dealt with this before. You thought you had repented of it before, whatever else. You're just so angry at yourself, right? You're so angry at yourself and you're so ashamed that you, oh, you can't even go to God. Let me tell you something, you better repent if that's what you're thinking. Because you know what that's a sign of? That's a sign of spiritual pride. That's not a sign of you being all broken up over your sin. Because if you think that there's any sin, if you think that there's any giving into temptation, if you think that there's any blot or stand in your soul that can really stand between you and the grace of God, If you think there's anything between you and God that can really uh, stop his love, what are you saying? You're saying that, well, number one, you're, you're saying that your standard of righteousness is higher than his? That's foolishness. Or number two, maybe you're saying that you were earning your spot all along. And that he was loving you and that he was giving you grace and that you were in church and that you were in groups and you were, you were teaching or you're doing every, whatever else because you were being so good. But now that you weren't so good for a while, you think, oh, how could I ever get back to that place before? Let me tell you something. You weren't in that place before because of what, anything you had done. And so the next time that, that you're wallowing in your shame, as you're wallowing in your guilt, and you feel like you cannot break the clouds of, of guilt and shame that are hanging over your head, let me challenge you. You're not actually as broken up over your sin as you think you are. You're actually in spiritual pride, deep in it. And as long as you allow it to remain in your heart, it will be a block and an obstacle between you and receiving that divine mercy. It's only going to be reminding yourself that any love and grace that you had experienced up until that moment in your life was a pure gift. And so, what would stop that love and mercy now? The second danger is that you might start to regard other people with contempt and disrespect rather than seeing them as created equal in the image of God, rather than seeing your fellow church members and the person that you worship next to as being equally saved by the grace of God, right? Being just like that Pharisee who said, I thank you, that you know, I'm not all these things, and that I'm, uh, you know, he, it's all, you, you, don't, you can almost see him looking around, and I'm not like that guy. But you know what stings? I've thought that before. And if you're honest, you've thought that before too, haven't you? Maybe, maybe it's not in church, but maybe, maybe it's, it's uh, wherever you're downtown, and you're walking and you see that person, Living on the streets, or maybe it's whenever you're at the coffee shop or the grocery store or at the office, and you think to yourself, Oh, I'm happy I'm not like that person. That's spiritual pride, and spiritual pride is an obstacle. But let's look at the opportunity that is presented to us. The opportunity that is presented to us is only for those who understand that they are not spiritually wealthy. And spiritually rich, but that they are spiritually bankrupt before God. That they have no credentials, that they have no amount of moral goodness or excellence to lay before God to merit or receive his grace. Justification is only available to the spiritually bankrupt, those who acknowledge their need for God's grace. And so here's what justification is, because I know I've been using that word a lot here's what I'm going to describe what it is. This is our second point. Justification is the gift of righteousness. Justification is the gift of righteousness. Here's what that means. Justification means more than just your sins being forgiven. Because we talk about that often in Christianity, right? If you've been in church at all, you've heard that your sins can be forgiven right? And, 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 and Jesus died for your sins to be forgiven and you need to be saved so that your sins can be forgiven. And so we often think to ourselves that to be saved or that to be a Christian or to be a disciple is just someone who has had their sins forgiven, right? But being saved or, or, or coming to relationship with God is so much more than that. And that's where we get this term justification because justification speaks to more than just our sins being removed. Because think about that. Would it be very good news for you in your life if, uh, whenever you came to accept the gospel and to receive Christ as your Savior, that all the sins in your past had been removed and then that was it? Would that be very good news for you? You see, what that would be, that would be the gospel of second chances. Maybe you've heard the gospel described to you before as a second chance. The gospel of second chances, you know, you had, you just, oh, you, you did terrible for all your life. You had been living in bad ways, and you're real sinful, and all you needed was for a second chance. And so that is what Jesus did. He died so that you could have a second chance. Well, let me tell you something. If that's what the gospel was, we are all in trouble. Because I blew, you blew your second chance, most likely within half an hour after receiving the gospel, Right? If the gospel is the gospel of second chances, we are in deep, deep trouble. But thank God it's not. Because the gospel offers to us not just the sins of your past being wiped away. It offers to you justification. Which means this. More than just your sins being removed, but being given a new status and standing before God. Sins being forgiven is negative, right? It is something being removed. It's something being taken away. So so as as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, God removed the debt of sin that stood against us, right? So that is the negative aspect. Sins being removed, but then justification is positive because our sins are then removed and we are then given the gift of righteousness. In other words, that standing of being right before God. That ability to move from being outside of God's family to being inside of God's family. That opportunity to have been a lawbreaker before God, but then to stand before the court of his divine justice, to hear the verdict of guilty and have Jesus come and stand next to you, and Jesus take that verdict of guilty on himself, and then you receive the favor. You receive the pardoning. You receive the blessing that should have belonged to him. And so that's why it's so much better than a second chance, because now it's not just, all right, your sins were removed, so now you're free to go on and and live your life. But no, it is instead, you have been placed into a new standing with God, so that as you go on and live your life, and as you continue to struggle and wrestle with sin, as you continue to try to grow more and more into the image of Christ, you are covered in the righteousness of Christ. You see, so you know what that means? That means that there are grace for your mistakes. That means that there is unending grace for those seasons that you go through of spiritual dryness or of unrepentance, right? It means that once you have been justified by God, there is nothing in this world that can overturn it. So justification regards a standing before God. It is not a moral perfection or some characteristic of or attribute of moral character. It is not something that you need to attain. It is something that is given to you, the righteousness of God. Justification is also this. Justification is something that is instantaneous. Whenever you experience conversion, that moment where you are Aware of your sinfulness and your need for God's grace, you go to Him for grace and He gives it to you, right? That conversion. In that moment, you are justified like that. There's no process that you have to go through, there's no waiting period of of God saying, okay, thank you for your interest. We're going to put you on our waiting list to see if you really should be allowed into the kingdom, into heaven. That's not how it works. He doesn't put you on a waiting list. Your justification is instantaneous. It is given to you as a gift because there is no working or transforming or processing your way into that standing before God. It is given to you. It is like Christ's robe of righteousness that he earned and that he wears. He takes off and then he wraps it up around you. It's like this. Are you ever kind of married? Right? Do you ever go through the process of of becoming a husband or a wife? No. You go from not being married to being married like that. Whenever the officiant says, I now pronounce you husband and wife, boom, you're married. The engagement period is not kind of married. The rough patches that come on later are not kind of married, right? You either are or you are not because it's a status, it's a standing and it's received instantaneously. Justification works the exact same way. It's a status that is given to you and it is received instantly. The last thing, just, on justification. Justification, like I said, is a, it is a standing, it is instantaneous. And then third, it is a gift from God. Now, I already said that before, but I just want to explain this a little bit more. Justification is a gift from God. Like I said, it is the gift of righteousness. So I want to be very clear here that, here that no one misunderstands this. It is not the gift for you to become righteous. It is not the gift of an opportunity for you to grow righteousness. In a sense, it is those things. We'll get to that later. But it is the gift of righteousness. Here's what I mean by that. So in Romans chapter 1, in verses 16 through 17, Paul wrote this. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, what does he say the righteousness of God is revealed in? He says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. What is that it? It is, as he said in verse 16, the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? So on and so on. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, what can that mean? That the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. There was a German monk. Priest, uh, not among a German priest and theologian back in the 1500s who was reading this verse and trying to grasp and understand what it meant. His name was Martin Luther. Martin Luther was pouring over this passage and this this verse that is referenced to there. Because there's, there's like four different times in the New Testament where something really similar on these lines is written. And Paul refers to the righteous living by faith. He's trying to figure out, what does it mean that in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed? He couldn't wrap his mind around it until finally he discovered it. And this was the key, this was the spark that led to what became the Protestant Reformation. He finally grasped it. In it being the gospel there is an opportunity for people who are sinners and for who have a status of guilty to receive a righteousness that comes from outside of themselves and then is bestowed upon them. What is that? It is the righteousness of God. That is what it means for the righteousness of God to be revealed in the gospel, to be opened up and to become available in the gospel. What Luther called this is, uh, he called this justitia alienum, an alien righteousness. Justification is, a right, is the opportunity for a righteousness, for that status and standing that is not from you, that is not built by you, that is not earned by you. It is alien to you. It is from outside of you that is then bestowed upon you. Like I said before, the metaphor of, of Jesus' robe being taken off of himself and then placed upon you a justification which is not yours being given to you as a gift. This is what we mean. or A righteousness that is not yours being given to you as a gift. This is what we mean by justification. So here's what this means for us. It means that this gift of righteousness, this justification, should make you both confident and humble. First of all, it should make you humble because... Like I said, it came from outside you. You didn't earn it. There's nothing you did to deserve it. There's nothing you can ever do to pay God back for it. So that should make you incredibly humble. Wherever you know that one day you will enter heaven, no matter how good you have been, no matter how hard you worked, no matter how many wonderful things you did or mission trips that you went on or money that you donated or whatever else, and that you will enter heaven Those gates of heaven, just as the the worst of the worst sinners, you will both enter those gates upon the same standing, the work of Jesus Christ given to you as a gift. That makes you humble. That gives you the humility that can form a bond of church unity like nothing else. So that all of us with our various different backgrounds, with our various different pedigrees of morality, right? And with a, the, our various personalities can understand that we all have the ability to sit next to one another and receive a sermon or to stand next to one another and, and worship together all upon the same grounding, the righteousness of Christ that was given to us as a gift. That makes you humble. It makes you able to have fellowship with people who you might be tempted to see yourself as better than might make you willing not just to have fellowship with them, but to serve them, but to be helpful, but to be sacrificing to those who you don't necessarily see as deserving because you received something that you didn't deserve. See, that makes you humble. But on the other hand, it should make you confident. It should make you confident. There is nothing that can overturn God's declaration of justified. And so whenever sin tempts you, to doubt and to wonder over God's love, then those thoughts can be banished away, right? Whenever you are tempted to try to prove your goodness before the world, you can be reminded, I have nothing to prove and I have no one to impress because God has approved of me by his grace. That, that frees you not just from a self-reliance of having to earn your salvation, but it also it frees you from a self-consciousness of being worried about what others think and, and, and trying to live up to other people's standards because, because God has loved you, right? He has approved of you by his work. And so it should make you both confident and humble. Quickly as we close, the outcome, what happens after justification? You don't have to read that far in Luke to figure out what happens. Because in Luke chapter 19, we read a story about a tax collector who went home justified. In the story of Zacchaeus, in Luke 19, verses 8 through 10, it says, But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost." Does that mean that Zacchaeus was justified or saved because he was going to give back to those he had extorted from or to give away half of his possessions? No, it doesn't mean that. Zacchaeus was justified by grace, just like the tax collector in this parable or just like any one of us. But the evidence, the result, the outcome of him having been justified was a transformed life. So the last thing is that justification leads to a transformed life. It's true that there's nothing that you can do to earn or to merit your your standing with God. But after you receive it, right, well, then we do work towards a life that lives up more to his standard of holiness. We do put our effort in to becoming more like Jesus. We do the difficult work of repenting from sin and living in obedience, of growing in, uh, in into the righteousness that has been given to us, right? I like to think of it as, as you wear that robe of righteousness that was Jesus Christ and given to you. The Christian life is trying to make the inside start to look more like what you have on the outside. So what that means is this, you're standing with God secure. Like I said, there's grace for your mistakes. There's never going to be a day where he's going to love you more than you were at your worst, right? So you have that security, and in that security, we grow and we work to become more righteous. Justification always leads to a transformed life. So let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and we thank you for the gospel of grace. We thank you that the gospel of grace is not the gospel of second chances, and that it is not the gospel of us um, having an opportunity to be saved if we can just do enough goodness, if we can just follow enough rules, if we can just prove ourselves, Lord, because that would be a standard that we can never live up to, Lord, but instead the gospel is the good news of grace, that we are given this gift of righteousness that is not our own, but that comes from you. Lord, you clothe us in the robes of Christ. You make us your sons and daughters by your declaration and not by anything that we prove or accomplish ourselves. Lord, if there are any here today who have not yet been justified, who have been trying to live in their own righteousness, Lord, who have been thinking that it is it is through their goodness and it's through their ability to follow the rules that they are made acceptable before you. Father, would you show them their need for grace, their need for mercy, that they could never live up to your holy standards, Lord, that they have been a lawbreaker, that they have a debt of sin before you that they cannot pay, and that the only payment that can remove that record of debt is the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you remove that spiritual pride from them, help them to see that justification and being in relationship with you, being saved is only for the spiritually bankrupt, those who lay down their own righteousness and instead receive the gift that can only come from you. Lord, and for all of us, may we leave here today in a new confidence that comes from knowing that our standing and our status is secure in you and in your grace, Lord, but also humbled, to have greater unity and fellowship with our fellow church members, Lord, to live in a uh, greater um, ability and willingness to serve sacrificially and to love those around us because we have been humbled by the gospel of justification by grace. So, Father, we pray all these things today in the name of your Son.